from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. This is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams, and welcome to Bridging Philly. When you mention the Philadelphia Parking Authority to folks, you probably will be met with an eye roll or even a scowl. No one likes to get parking tickets, but the parking laws must be enforced. I'm here to do a job. I like my job, and I think it's helping the city. Representatives from the PPA, including an enforcement officer, join us to discuss the authority's work, and they discuss how they deal with the threats and assaults by the public. Charity Howard has our newsmaker this week. There are many different avenues work just getting that tree and, and mastering it and doing it. Antoinette Lee has our Philly Rising changemaker. It's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Hello and welcome to Bridging Philly. We'll just walk up to any motorist who parks their car on the streets of Philadelphia and ask them what they think about the Philadelphia Parking Authority. You probably won't hear glowing reviews. Describe the PPA in two words. Relentless. It's just part of living here. Some of them are fair. Some of them can be mean. And if they're having a bad day, you're having a worse day. I think they do their job. Follow the rules and regulations and you'll be all right. PPA has plenty of critics and the politics surrounding the inner workings of the authority occasionally rise to the surface. But we thought it would be both fun and informative to sit down with the PPA and hear from them exactly what it's like to interact with folks on the streets, what the misconceptions are about the authority. And finally, we can get you some tips on how you might be able to save some money on parking. Here with us today, Ms. Beth Grossman. She is the board chair for the PPA. Mr. Dennis Weldon is the PPA general counsel and acting executive director. Ms. Kareen O'Connor is executive deputy executive director, and she handles uh, on the street situations. And with us also is Carla Evans, who is a PPA parking enforcement officer. Thank you all for joining us today on Bridging Philly. Thank you. Where'd you all park? <laughs> we got dropped off. Yeah, we don't park. <laughs> you don't park. <laughs> and ironically, I walked. <laughs> all right, good. All right. Well, let's get all the business out of the way before we get on to the uh, the fun parking regulations and violations and things of that nature. There are, from what I understand, lots of new board members and changes at the executive level. And I understand that there's a bit of a financial overhaul taking place at the authority. Beth, perhaps. You can talk a little bit about that. Certainly. Again, thank you for having us. Um, it's an exciting time for the authority. Five out of the six PPA board members are new. Latest ones being appointed really this past June. And we are a very collaborative board. We all have different experiences. So that's very exciting. And as a result of being a new board, we thought it was a good time and a fresh opportunity to look at things as to how the authority has been running because the previous board created a foundation for us. But it's always good to look at policies and procedures and practices with a fresh eye. So that being said, we put out RFPs to have an outside financial agency to come in and take a look at our financial financial practices. Um, what do we need to keep our budget in the best, you know, well-focused and organized and accurate way, along with a company coming in to look at our HR? Do we have the best practices? Are we diverse? And are our policies and procedures up with current law and things like that? So it's a fresh look at everything, which I think is important. Okay. So a bit of a cleanup that's happening right now. I don't know if 
it's cleanup. I just think it, I think it's a fresh eye. And okay. if there's things that need to be corrected, that's great. And if there are new things that need to be implemented, let's do it. And if there are things that need to be gotten rid of, then so be it. So it's it's a good time. All right. Understand. And I also understand that the PPA establishes its own budget, not the city. But Helen Gim has made it very clear that she would like the city council to secure approval power of the authority's budget. Any thoughts on that? Well, first of all, we are a Commonwealth agency. We are not, there is no oversight by the city. We do set our own budget. So there is really no need for the city to oversee our budget. As set by the legislature, if there are any concerns, then the Pennsylvania Attorney General is free to take a look, um, have the Auditor General take a look at our practices. And we've been through many, many audits over the past several years, and that's fine, too. We are transparent. We're happy to open our books, but there is no reason to have city oversight. Okay. And also talk about the state-mandated funding formula. What's Going on with the payments to the city's school district, I know this issue continues to surface. Does the authority actually fund the school district? Well, first of all, let me just say, because I'd like to just let the listeners out there know exactly what the PPA's mission is. So the PPA, when it was created, is to contribute to the economic vitality of the Philadelphia and our surrounding region by effectively managing and providing convenient parking on the street, at the airport, and in garages and lots effectively operate a system of red light camera enforcement, regulating taxi cabs, limousines, and transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft, and other transportation-related activities. That being said, um, you know, it's important for us to have good working relationship with the city, with the executive branch, legislative, the school district, and other stakeholders. So getting as part of that, in 2004, a the legislature enacted what's, what's called Act 9, which created a formula for the distribution of net on-street parking revenue, not our garage revenue, that was designed to protect the flow of on-street parking revenue to the city. So, for example, it was initially started and it had a threshold. And the initial threshold was anything that on-street parking net made up to $25,000 would go to the city. Anything over would go to the school district. And over the years, that threshold has gotten higher and higher, and it is currently up to $42.3 million. So anything over that amount goes to the school district. You know, so last year, I I think $14.3 million went to the school district. I must point out that the school district's budget is $3.9 billion. So we, uh, we are happy to contribute, but it must, you know, please note that we are a very small percentage of the school district's budget. I guess that's one of the misconceptions out there that it's the PPA's responsibility to completely fund the, the, the school district. And yeah. No. And if we were making that much money, that would be a whole <laughs> lot of parking. And, um, you know, our city would probably be 10 times the size it is. I mean, understand. I know in a, in a recent hearing, you know, the old issues of exaggerated executive uh, salaries uh, have come up, political patronage jobs have rose, things of that nature. Are these valid concerns? Are they overblown? Is this something that you're looking into? No, we we look at anything, um, and I think we're looking at our practices. You know, we, for example, we want to hire the best and the brightest. Um, so now everybody is free to look on our website, which is org, to see what employment opportunities are out there. And we welcome everybody to come and hire. We just want to make sure that everybody in the city who's looking for work knows that we might be a source of employment for somebody.
Well, COVID took its toll on staffing for just about everyone. And I'm assuming that that was the case with the PPA as well. Are we back fully staffed? Everything back to normal? Um, Administratively, yes. Uh, The position of park and enforcement officer, no. We're making great strides. We've been advertising on Facebook, philopark.org, Twitter, Indeed. So in the past few months, since January, We've gained probably an additional 30 parking enforcement officers, but we've hired probably 100. So our retention rate's around 30%, and because it's a tough job. So getting out there, being out in the heat and the cold and dealing with the public all day, it's not for everybody, and mm-hmm. we let people know that. When they come in, we work from 6.30 in the morning till midnight every day. So you're going to work night work. You're going to work various neighborhoods. But we are getting a lot of good qualified people. Uh, It's a physical job, a lot of walking. So you're not just driving, walking, and we're adding a bicycle patrol. Oh, you are? Yeah. Is it the first time? Yes. Oh, okay. So just one bicycle patrol. Where where would that be? So that would be eight parking enforcement officers on bikes. We're going to start off in Center City in South Philly. I started here back in October, and I guess around that time, especially right in the beginning, I guess it was toward the end, people finally just starting to inch back into the offices, and uh, people were taking advantage of the fact there weren't too many, uh, you know, tickets being uh, uh, being written. So we we're like, oh, let's just park wherever. You know, this is, you know, free reign. And then that, that really came down very quickly. <laughs> and um, I ended up getting about eight tickets on Market Street because I didn't know the lay of the land. I wasn't familiar. And I now know that's probably not the best place to park if you're going to be here all day, anywhere all day. <laughs> what would you say that is the biggest mistake that people make, especially if they're coming from out of town when it comes to parking in Philadelphia? What's the mistakes that people make? Carla, maybe you can chime in on that. Yes, I can. (laughs) The mistakes people make is paying the wrong meter zone, Hmm. not paying attention to the signs, the arrows. You have about five signs on one pole in Center City. Mm -hmm. Parking in zones that are not labeled for the amount of time that you need. Um, That's just a few. Mm Mm-hmm. But people just really don't pay attention. They think they're faster than a parking enforcement officer. (laughs) Not true. (laughs) And that is not true. Oh, my goodness. You know, you were talking about the signs. And, you know, when you're just fresh in the city and you're kind of looking up and you're like, okay, the arrow is pointing here, but it's pointing there. And there's a sign that's not there. And this says two (laughs) arrows, but that says three. And then what? And sometimes I, I will tell you at first, I mean, I've gotten used to it now, but at first it can be a little confusing. For the person who is not used to seeing all these signs and you're like, well, where is this OK? Can I park here? And then you eventually find out whether or not you could park there. Is it us or is it the signs? What would you say? Would you think that the, you're used to it? You you live in this city and you. But for us coming from out of town, we're going, gee, what does that mean? This the arrows is driving. Well, crazy. I believe it's the citizens. OK, we make it very <laughs> <me>. clear. <laughs> <laughs> we make it very clear. We have. Signs, we have anchor signs, which are signs that show you, hey, this is the spot that you cannot do this or you can do this for whatever amount of time. Mm -hmm. It's just people not paying attention and rushing. We are in a rush, that's for sure. It takes me 20 seconds to write a ticket. Oh, my gosh. you're not faster than that, then. 
Well, let's talk about the parking app because you did bring that up. Sometimes people put in the wrong number. They think they're okay, and they realize, oh, I put the wrong number in, and I really wasn't paying for this space. Um, The parking app, though, some people said was a complete game changer. Would you say that that's the case? Everybody could chime in on that. Is the the parking app made things a lot easier in terms of I think it does. So you do not have to run out, and you could be in here and have to run out to the street to pay the meter Mm -hmm. when you can pay it right from your phone. I think that's very, very convenient. I mean, two things that I think are good with the app. When you park, make sure you put your correct license plate in. Some people have an account where they have theirs or wives or sons or daughters. So you have to make sure you click on the correct plate. Once you do that, it's going to pop up the zones by GPS that are closest to where your vehicle is parked or where you're standing with your cell phone. Mm -hmm. So make sure you pick the right zone. And then, as Carla said, once you're in there, you're in a meeting, the meeting runs late, you can keep renewing right. up to triple the, the signage. So if it's two-hour parking, you could go up to six hours. Mm-hmm. It just goes up tiered pricing where you're going to pay more. I noticed the longer that. you stay. And the other thing is if you end up paying for parking ahead of time for two hours and your meeting ends in one hour, you can stop payment. So you're only paying for the time that you park. And that is the biggest thing that no other city does that. And our vendors, when we do hire the vendors, programming-wise, they hate that we came up with that idea, but we felt it was good with public relations. And we're up to like a 70% adoption rate. 70% of the payment at the meter is coming through that app. So very little cash is coming through, and 15% is credit card, and only like 3 4% is coin. Okay. It is convenient, and you do get the little reminders. I mean, I've seen them on the top of the phone, and I have ignored them on occasion. Don't ignore the reminders. Re-up if you have to re-up. How long after your time has expired, though, in the app are you issuing tickets? I mean, to me, it feels like it's five minutes, but really, what's what's the situation like with that? Is it immediate? Is it instant, or does it depend on who's on duty and where you are? Uh, immediate. It's immediate. I'm trying to give tips here. (laughs) So it's immediate. It's immediate. If you use the app, you do get a a reminder 15 minutes um, before your meter expires. So it's best to re-up before it expires. Don't wait for that. As soon as they give you that notification. Mm -hmm. Okay. You should not wait until it expires. Where can you park for free? Is there free parking in Philadelphia? (laughs) Several, some areas in what you could call Northern Liberties down around like 4th and 5th Street mm-hmm. uh, north of Spring Garden. Um, but within the center city hub between Delaware Avenue and up to 40th Street, mm-hmm. no, not really. Well, talk about your um, residential parking program uh, and the neighborhood lots. I wasn't aware that there were, there were such a things. What is the residential uh, parking program? So what the Residential Permit Parking Program was created for residents that live within a district that, say, there's a lot of restaurants or you're near, like, a bus depot Mm -hmm. where it's a day where a lot of other people are coming and parking within your neighborhood. So it was created that the people that actually bought their house, paid the taxes, said, I'm not being able to find parking and I want to have this level that I have more of a chance to find a parking. So they go and they buy the residential permit parking sticker. First vehicle's $35. Second vehicle's 50 Third vehicle's 75 Then the fourth is 100 okay. So more cars you have at that house, the more costly it's going to get. 
you get a year permit, and when you park in that zone, if you're in your zone, like if you're in zone six, you do not have to move your car all day. Now, if I come in and I don't have an RPP sticker, then I have to move my car every two hours off that block fees. Okay. And so. those that those are available in all the communities in Philadelphia? You have to request it. So okay. the parking authority doesn't come up and say, we're coming into your neighborhood and we're going to put up the signage. They have to petition. Uh, 62% of the block has to agree to it. So the person that wakes up and says, I want to petition and put this up, they have to knock on every door, get a signature, that person's address, then has to go to the city council office that's within that zone. They have to agree to that signage. We then go and present it to streets and services in front of the city council. It becomes a legalized regulation on the law books of the ordinances in Philadelphia. And then we go out and patrol. And then once we start patrolling, we usually give like a little bit of like a warning period where we're going to put up stair clears. The one thing I like to tell people, everything's virtual now. So mm-hmm. neighbors call and say, there's five cars on my block that don't have a sticker and they don't move all day long. Mm-hmm. Anybody that buys a sticker now does not, you're not going to see it on their vehicle. Okay. And that's what the park and enforcement officer is doing. When they're walking down the block, scanning plates with that handheld, mm-hmm. that's what they're doing. They're not giving you a ticket. They're making sure that you have a sticker or not a sticker. And then they, the handheld is timing you for the two hours if you don't have the sticker. Okay. And that ties into a lot of market enforcement officers are getting harassed by the public, thinking that they're getting a ticket when they're just being timed. Talk to me about neighborhood lots. I, I guess I was confusing that with the residential parking program, but that's different, right? Yeah, the neighborhood lot program has actually started, um, gosh, probably more than 30 years ago. Um, and originally, actually, the way it started was the uh, the parking authority agreed to take these primarily city-owned parking lots spread out throughout the, the city in different neighborhoods, some of them along commercial corridors, some not. And in exchange for that, the authority also at the time was actually given the um, – the rights to run parking at the old Veterans Stadium, oh. which was actually a source of revenue that could fund the neighborhood lots. Well, we still have the neighborhood lots, but obviously Veterans Stadium is long gone, and we don't uh, run the, the parking in at South Philadelphia, the sports complexes anymore. So these these different lots are spread throughout the neighborhood, and they're used at different capacities. Some are used very actively in the neighborhoods, particularly where there are commercial corridors, and some really aren't. Some there's not a lot of activity around there. So is a really important program for some neighborhoods. We do work with a lot of community groups to actually clear those lots and let them use them for the weekends for festivals and events. There's lots of things like that that mm-hmm. happen. But it, it is, it's, it's an expensive program to maintain. There's not a lot of revenue that comes through it. Right, right. Yeah, but um, it is a way we cooperate with the city of Philadelphia to kind of take over that uh, obligation for them. I'm thinking in terms of lots, and um, I've seen a lot of, like, abandoned cars in different lots. Are you guys responsible for removing those cars and towing those cars? And at what point does it get to the point where you have to tow them out? So on a neighborhood lot, if someone were to leave their vehicle, the abandoned vehicle uh, program is the purview of the Philadelphia Police Department. So when you look at the city ordinance, there's several steps in order for a police department to deem a vehicle abandoned. So you can't just go in and say, I'm going to tow this car if it's on a city street. Now, if that vehicle is parked on a lot that we manage, then it can be towed off for someone leaving their vehicle on, like, private property and under, like, a police request. So okay, you okay. shouldn't do it. We have a lot of short dumping that happens in the neighborhood lots. 
which are people just going, throwing couches and just their general trash. And it creates a lot of work for us to, because we want to keep these neighborhood lots clean. And we're paying a lot of staff to, to go back and keep cleaning up these lots. Just as an observer, as a new person in Philadelphia, one thing that I, I found quite interesting, and I found myself in back of these cars just waiting for them to move, and they're not moving. <laughs> and then I'm realizing, <laughs> wait a minute, they're parked. Parking is almost in the middle of the street. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Is no. that legal? I've is never, that never, never I've heard never that heard that <laughs> Why somebody say the, the it's mic- a Philly the, thing? No, honestly, the first time I had to laugh at myself because I found myself in the back of this car going, where's this guy going to go? I'm like, okay, he's parked. He's not going anywhere. Restaurant. <laughs> what is that about? Is that it's just something that you just don't you just overlook? Is it just not enough spaces and people are just going to pull up where they pull up and you just it's just too much? I think the answer to that is that the parking authority works very closely with the city of Philadelphia mm-hmm. and um, with elected officials in Philadelphia. And from time to time, we're requested to focus on some things more than others. Got and it. Uh, we're not really requested to focus on that mm-hmm. uh, area, mm-hmm. that particular subject matter. <laughs> Understand. But we'll just leave it as a quote unquote Philly thing. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into some things that happen on the ground with parking authority officers and Carly, you can speak to this. Yes. <laughs> I understand. Let me just read a couple of um, a little bit of data that was uh, supplied to me by your office. Uh, and that's the number of incidents and assaults involving uh, PPA parking enforcement officers. I'll just read a little bit off. And it seems like it's on the rise. Back in 2019, 57 incidents, 19 assaults. In 2020, 54 incidents, 22 assaults. In 2021, 191 incidents, 35 assaults. And uh, so far uh, here in 2022, 140 incidents and 10 assaults for a total of 150. Now, that's that's a lot. Um, and, of course, given COVID, you're seeing uh, an uptick in just about everything. People are just on edge in general. How do you handle them when they come up? Well, we do have de-escalation training and other trainings um, in the building to teach us how to deal with these the citizens and how they act. Nobody wants a ticket. Right. Right. But when you can't park or get through a block, then you want us to enforce it. So we just have to, you have to have thick skin working here. Okay. Tell me some, give me a story or two of either for yours or someone that you've worked with, uh, a couple of stories as, you know, dealing with the public, the angry public when they're getting a ticket and how you've been able to de escalate situations. Well, me, I, I really, I rarely get caught. I'm fast at ticket writing. (laughs) um, I did have an incident back in 2020. Guy spit in my face. Uh, I didn't even issue him a a ticket. I was on a block that we have a lot of problems with. It was during COVID. Mm. I was freaking out. Of course. So um, it was just a lot with that. Um, I've been in a few incidents, but I'm here to do a job. I like my job. And I think it's helping the city. I get angry when I can't get around a vehicle or, you know, I wish I could take a ticket book home. <laughs> Great. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm training people now to come in and be good parking enforcement officers and let them know you just have to come here to do a job. Everyone's upset, mm-hmm. but you have to have very thick skin 
yeah. work here. Well, you have to be pretty low down to spit in someone's face, mm. quite frankly. Right. That's just ridiculous. Tell me about the um, the de-escalation techniques that are taught uh, during training. What are, what are the officers taught to do? So what we did was we had de-escalation probably pre-COVID through the in- International Parking Mobility Institute. Um, that was a lot of role-playing. We then, when the assaults increased, it was more on a level that I reached out and I've reached out to the Philadelphia Police Department and thankfully they helped us and partnered with us to come out. They spent a whole week, so they did like two-hour sessions with everybody that works on the street. So it's not just parking enforcement officers, it's booters, towers, meter mechanics, and it's gotten to the level that even a meter mechanic's getting assaulted and they're not even issuing a ticket as long as someone sees that parking authority uniform, mm. the car, it just sets people off. So it was about 600 employees that received that training. And basically what they learned was there's not a perfect solution of this is what's going to happen this is how you respond. But it was more about being aware of your surroundings, how you talk to people, your tone, and um, what they say back in kind of like readable body language that – would this may escalate just the way people uh, start talking and their voice gets louder and maybe the way they're standing in front of you that yeah. just to be really aware, not being on your cell phone, not having earbuds in, treating people the way you would treat your family because he basically gave really good advice. Don't treat people the way you treat yourself because we don't always treat ourselves great mm, when we're eating junk food and not exercise and stuff like that. And I right. thought that was great. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and that is a big thing that a lot of times, like if someone asks you a question, answer that question, be respectful, that you're the ambassadors of Philadelphia. A lot of people don't think that, but when people, like you said, you moved into Philly, you're confusing the sign. If someone asks you a question, take that minute to answer the question. And that does help people have that different view of us. Mm -hmm. But some people, no matter what we do, is not going to change the view. But it was really about their safety and how concerned we are of their safety right now. Because it is, we're in every neighborhood at this point. Do you ever give people a break? If people come out and they see you writing the ticket and they say, because I, I, I will do this, please don't give me a ticket. Please, please, please. I just, I just, I, I just, I've been here for five minutes. You know, you hear all the excuses. Do you ever just put the ticket back and you go, okay, go ahead? Well, they, if they're at a meter, I can give them something called a rescission, where if I'm not finished the ticket, I can take the ticket back. Only at a meter. People get that confused with a lot of other things. Okay. Everyone comes and say, oh, I had someone take it back. And no, if you're in a no stopping or any violation of this sort, you cannot take it back. Only at a meter. So I do look around. That's the only break I give. Okay. All right. Got it. Okay. Well, you know, at least there is some kind of a break. And if you amass too many parking tickets, I paid all eight of mine. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. But uh, if I didn't pay all eight of my tickets, what what would happen eventually? If you um, acquire or or amass three or more parking violations, you'll go on to what's called the boot and tow list. Uh, Yeah. And every once in a while, we end up in in a hearing or in court about a booting or a towing or something like that. And it's always pretty helpful to let the judge know. 
and the situation, how exactly how many pieces of paper you're going to get in the mail before you're boot eligible? And I, I, what is it? Is it it's about eight notices per ticket, per ticket. if you uh, choose not to pay that ticket? And I just want to clarify, it's not just three parking tickets. It could be a combination of red light tickets and speed tickets. So you could have one parking ticket, one red light ticket, one speed ticket, and you're going to get on the boot eligible list. So, so at a minimum to be boot eligible, you, you have 24 pieces of mail that have come to your house to say, hey, you really got to pay. And then even before that happens, you're going to get another piece of mail that says you're, on, you're, on, you're going to be on the list soon. Now you're on the list. Okay, right? so you get enough warnings. Right. So then you're, then you're boot eligible, and then you know, uh, there are people who are employed to drive around and, and run plates, and we have scanners and find people who are on the boot list. I don't ever plan to be on the boot list, okay? so, <laughs> But uh, for those who have come out and seen that big orangey-yellow thing on their cars and realized I'm not going anywhere, um, what does it take to get off of that or get that removed? Probably big fines at that point. Well, it, it takes. It's generally going to take some some money, right? I mean, in order because that's the reason why it's uh, been placed on there in the first place. And there's a couple of different ways that it happens. The worst case scenario is you don't notice it or you can't do anything about it while it's sitting there in a vehicle. A, a tow truck will come and take the vehicle to an impoundment lot, and at that point, additional fees will accrue as a result of that. But there is a way. I'm sure Corinne can answer this better than I can. If you if you come out and the boot's on your car, so if you come out and the boot is on your car, you could go and fill apart. Dot org, why the vehicle is still on the street, and pay online. So you would pay your boot fee, which is $150, plus your outstanding parking tickets. And it's going to have you pay anything under your account. So you can have a vehicle that's registered to your name that maybe you have two tickets prior. Mm-hmm. So you may end up owing like five tickets. You can use a notice number or a ticket number, or it's like a virtual boot number. So you can't pay online with just your plate number, and that's really to get people that someone else isn't going into your account, just walking down the street seeing your plate and logging on the philopark.org and getting your information of what you owe. So that's why we do it that way. Mm -hmm. So make sure when they put that boot warning notice on your vehicle that you bring that into the house and or wherever you want to call from. But like Dennis said, once you're towed onto the lot after 72 hours, it turns into a tow fee, and then you start accumulating storage fees. So it's best to try to get that paid off quickly. We do bring the cars in off the street within a couple hours, and that's for security reasons. Because right. we do get people, a lot of people that try to tamper with the boot. And once you're proven that you tamper with the boot, that's a $1,000 fine. Wow. Okay. Okay. And we do have like one or two people a day that do that. Got it. All right. Don't want to get the boot, that's for sure. And you mentioned the red light camera uh, enforcement program. So anywhere in the city of Philadelphia, you could see a red light camera. We put up the proper signage. You could check on our website where they're located. So we have ones in from 48th and Walnut to uh, Welsh in the Boulevard. So they're in the Northeast or in South Philly, Broad in Oregon, all type of places. Uh, normally when a red light camera con- gets put in, it starts with a request, whether it's from, like, the police department, fire department, state reps, city council, Otis, which is part of the city and supports Vision Zero. They have about 55 requests in right now to expand on that program. So right now we have about uh, 36 intersections that are throughout the city of Philadelphia. It's, it's, it's a very deliberative process in terms of deciding where they should go, where they can't go. 
Um, there's a collaboration between the authority, the Department of Transportation, and the Streets Department. And you can't put a camera in unless city council actually passes an ordinance. So every one of those cameras requires uh, city council and the mayor to sign off on them. And there's a lot of uh, technical work that gets done before that can even happen. Okay. Well, between the red light cameras and the speeding cameras, have they both helped in cutting down on, you know, people blowing red lights and, and speeding in those areas? So originally the red light camera program when was in, implemented in about 2005. Started off at a red line in the boulevard and Grant in the boulevard. If you go, we still have those cameras up. The beginning, there was probably about 3,500 people running red lights at red line in the boulevard. Now you see about 200 people. Mm-hmm. So in certain intersections, it went down like 94%. Other intersections, after like year one and two, you'll see at least a 50% decrease. And just having that behavior change, you're going to see accidents go down. People still cross the street on the boulevard, believe it or not. And that's what we're trying to curtail that so another pedestrian does not get hit crossing mm-hmm. the boulevard or any kind of major thoroughfare between the speed cameras and the red light cameras, just making it safer for the driving public, the walking public, the bicyclists that are out there, which you're seeing more and more bike lanes. So just making sure people slow down. And so usually it's about a 91% decrease after a few years at an intersection. Beth, in the final minutes here, what would you want the public to ultimately know other than I hate the PPA? What would you like them to know about the Philadelphia Parking Authority? Just that we are here to do our jobs in a, in a, in a fair and just way. And that um, not only do we try and enforce the parking laws, but we try and make parking available so residents and visitors and businesses can come and have places to park, not only on the street, but in our garages, which are cost less than private lots, as well as the fact, as you heard about red light and speed light cameras we're, and the bicycle lanes, we're also a safety agency. And we want to become more involved in focusing on public safety and quality of life issues and continue to strengthen our ties with uh, city stakeholders. But I have to thank all our folks on the street, on on street, our PEOs, towers, booters, you know, those who manage the the meters, um, because they are the heart and soul of the parking authority. And we're grateful for them and their physical well-being is probably of most paramount importance to all of us. And we have a wonderful customer service department. If people have questions, I encourage people to call in and ask their questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. And they're trained. They're very courteous and knowledgeable folks. And visit our website. Okay. And what's the number for the customer service? 888-591-3636. And if you want to become part of the heart and soul of the PPA, they are hiring. Recruitment is underway. And all you have to do is log on to philipark.org, right? That is correct. correct. All right. Sounds good. Beth Grossman, Dennis Weldon, Kareen O'Connor, and Carla Evans, thank you so much for joining us today on Bridging Philly. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. 30 Seconds to Second Chances, brought to you by the Gift of Life Donor Program. In 2013, Timmy Nelson went in for back surgery and got the shock of his life. Found out that my kidneys were failing. Had no idea, no symptoms. A year later, he was on dialysis and in need of a transplant. Probably the most frightening thing I've ever gone through. He focused on his health and got a new kidney three years later on his 60th birthday. Every day is a holiday and I have a new gift of life. Register as an organ donor at DonorsOne.org and help save lives. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. 
Sharaday Howard brings us this week's Newsmaker. For our Newsmaker this week, we're celebrating two men who've made news within the Philadelphia communities. Lonnie Umar Clover and David Baker, both born and raised in Philadelphia. They know the struggle young black men are facing and are working to give those youth a way off the streets and onto a sustainable career path. As tradesmen with a passion for teaching and mentoring, both are licensed contractors, electricians, and roofers. Together, they created a training program teaching life skills and trade skills, which they hope will lead to a brighter and safer future for our Philly youth. Welcome, Lonnie and David, to Bridging Philly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, both of you are business owners, but you're also mentors. When I was coming up, we had everything was trade school, trade school, and I went to different trade schools, and that's how I learned all my trades. And what trades are those? Let's just line them all up. Well, I uh, went to uh, electrical school and um, roofing, I learned from the from the master roofers. And you've taken your mentoring to an entirely different level, which really has gotten a lot of attention of community leaders, but also just families, because you're able to create a focus outside of street violence. You're giving kids another option. Yes, and the, the way we do our training program, our hands-on program is we bring our trainees on and we monitor them through the job. We show them how to do the job and they're getting their hands on. And you really zero in on families within the community, families that need a little extra help during these difficult times. Those that can't really afford to have their roof done um, and their houses leaking or they have, they need work done in their properties, then we bring our trainers in and we train them their hands-on on their properties, on their roofs, and inside carpentry, whatever, we get the job done for you. That's uh, one way of getting our students hands-on and helping the community. And you got your start because there were masters. There were men who took an interest in you and invested in you. And now you're doing that for others within the community. And you say Philly really needs it right now. Well, after graduating from school, I um, worked with the uh, master electricians and the, and the roofers. I never, um, school didn't really present the ways of doing the work, but I did get the theory from the schools. But working with the hands-on with the electricians, I was able to master the trade, the skills. And you made a really good point. You said you were one of those kids who was not meant to go to college. You were supposed to have your own business. And there are other kids out there who need to have other options because universities aren't really affordable, but trade schools are affordable and accessible. And then all you need is a mentor. And that's where you step in. It was it was a benefit, a great benefit. Well, trade school is, uh, is more self-sufficient. You don't really have to go to college and spend uh, thousands of dollars to learn a trade. If you learn a trade and you master that trade, then you can be successful. You don't have to um, waste, I'm not gonna say wasting time going to college, but you have to just be diligent in your studying and understanding and just go forth with it. And you see something in these kids that maybe that those masters saw in you, a brighter future. Well, I was, I was diligent, I was, I, was good at, I, was, at, I was good at what I was doing and they didn't have to, um, watch over me after they showed me something I was able to, to comprehend and catch on. Being as though I had the, the theory already, I was in somewhat a little more skilled than they was. I had a plan. My plan was to, um, to, to, to just expand. I wanted to do things for myself. I worked 
but I wanted more. And I was used to working for myself more so than working on jobs. And I, it was more benefit, and I felt more independent. So I just went for it, and I was successful. I just held on to my dreams. And you say right now is the time. These kids really need another option. Street violence can't be the only way. And you show them it's really not. They're, they're real smart. The children, they're smarter than, than we were when I was coming up for some reason. They just catch on quicker. Um, we just try to, I try to get them out, out of the street to show them that there's a better way um, than hanging around, standing on the corner, doing certain things they don't have to do. And they can have a car just like anybody else. They can have, a, they can get a house. They can go in business for themselves. They can get their license. They can, or they can work for a company. They have many different avenues. Work just getting that trade and and mastering it and doing it. So what got you here? What do you tell these kids about your own past that helps you connect with them? Well, number one, I was running the streets and hanging out, watching everybody else that was moving on past me, having cars, having what I didn't have. I um, sat back and I thought, and I said, if I stay here like this, I'm not going to get anywhere. And being, all the trade schools was, was free in the 60s and the 70s. They was paying us to go to school. So I went to every little trade school that I could go to. Delaware Valley School of Trade, JFK, OIC. I went to all those trade schools and I, and I stayed and I graduated from them. I went to Job Corps twice. I went to Wisconsin. I went to um, Breckenridge Job Corps in, in Morganfield, Kentucky. And I just stayed and I learned. So today I benefit, I do carpentry, I can do plumbing, I can do heating and air conditioning. I can, I can do electrical work. I can do roofing work. If I had a house, I wouldn't have to call a contractor. So I just, all around, it was free. I took advantage of it. And there's a lot of people out here just not giving back. What made you decide you needed to contribute to the community? You wanted to do something for these kids. We, we get the young guys. I take them to work. I pay them by the day. I train them. I sit them. We have classes for them. They sit in the class. Um, we teach them the, whatever jobs are going on. Then we take them out on the job, give them some hands-on. And the, the whole plan is eventually to take them and let them get their own license, let them get their own insurance. They can work for our company or they can go out on their own or they can go to the union, but they will have enough to be prosperous. Now, why is it important as a black man that you are giving back to the black and brown communities? It's important because I've had my ups and downs when I was young and in the neighborhoods, and, and I see that the, 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 the young children now is, is killing each other. Half of them is, is dying off, they're in jail, and we just, we just dying off. And what I went through, I don't want to see them go through those changes in the community. We, should, we can be a light to the community if we just reach out. And that's what you're doing. You're reaching out, but you're not doing it alone. You're doing it with a partner. Now, I'd like to introduce David. Now, this is a great story because Lonnie was your mentor, and now you're mentoring alongside Lonnie to help that next generation. Lonnie, he was a mentor to me, you know, some many years ago. And so I'm in a position now that, you know, I can start to give back myself. Now, giving back. Not everybody does it. Some people get their bag and they keep it moving. You didn't do that. You reach back. Yeah. Um, I have two sons and I also recently adopted two sons. So, you know, the way I look at it, it's, it's, it's necessary for me to continuously uh, look at ways to try to improve the circumstances of young people. Now, we're looking 
around us and we're seeing an increase in violence, an increase in poverty. So you and your wife started a nonprofit to offer resources and education to those who needed it most. We created a nonprofit where we you know, run camps continuously, we're running schools. I myself, through this nonprofit, have done at least two apprenticeship classes. So the point of the nonprofit is a collection of schools or it's really just education. What I realized from being a young person myself is the circumstances that I came from, I see that still prevalent in societies. And a lot of these young men are not prepared. They're not prepared for school, let alone uh, uh, careers. So. I try to take a holistic approach to it and um, not just train them, train their hands, but actually help them through different things. Um, so you're training their mind. Exactly. Just life skills, bank accounts, uh, resumes, you know, things like this. I, I hate to be the father, <laughs> but uh, sometimes you know, it ends up being that, uh, um, being that way. But it's rewarding, though. It's uh, something that I wouldn't trade off. You know, I needed it. You know, I grew up, my father actually died before I was born, a few months before I was born. So I grew up without a father uh, completely. So I know, kind of know what it feels like. I made it through, but I know that, you know, with the right resources and connections, you know, a uh, young man, he can, he can make it out here. So you sit back and say it's all worth it. I watch the news every day, not necessarily for news sometimes, just to make sure that people are safe, especially the people that's closest to me. It's, you know, it's troubling to see these, how the young people are destroyed, sometimes by their own hands, but a lot of times it's just the circumstances that they're in. So you're trying to change those circumstances as best you can. And why not start with education? Exactly. Being educated, like Lonnie, I went to a trade schools, but prior to that, I was in the military. So I seen a different side of uh, society. After the military, I went to college. I found that college was um, not necessarily for me. It, I'm not saying it's not for everyone, but it wasn't for me because I never planned on being behind a desk. I did get a degree, but I actually like working with my hands. I like taking things from nothing or something that's broken and, you know, fixing it. And this is what uh, drew me to the industry. So a lot of these young men, they have no clue about college. They have no clue about furthering their education. So, you know, we, I try to play a part through our nonprofits and my, uh, where, you know, they could at least be exposed to some of that. Because exposure, resources, and education can make all the difference. You can do it. You can do it. Just keep, keep trying. You can do it. You can do it the right way. Now, how does that youth reach out and actually contact you if they want to get a skill set? Lonnie, what's your contact info? My company name is Second State Contractors Roofing and Home Improvements. And we have a program called the Hands Up Trade and Training Program. And you can get in touch with me, 215-787-7023. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. 
At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health. I'm Antoinette Lee, here with the KYW Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. This week's Philly Rising Changemaker wears many hats, but today we're highlighting them for their role as president of a nonprofit that's been around for a while. It's called the Father's Day Rally Committee, and they make sure the issues and well-being of dads are on the forefront, not just one day out of the year, but year-round. Here's more. My name is Bilal Kayyum, president of the Father's Day Rally Committee. Thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. Thank you for um, having me. Now, you do a lot around the city as it relates to gun violence prevention, activism, uh, but one organization that you're known for is the Father's Day Rally Committee. For those who aren't familiar with it, tell us what it is. Um, Father's Day Rally Committee started um, 32 years ago. Um, It started where it was a group of African-American men that got together uh, very concerned about um, the images that were being portrayed in the media um, of black men in particular. Um, And we had a long discussion at that meeting and decided to take action. Um, So we planned a rally, um, which happened happened to be the Saturday before Father's Day. Um, That's where the name came from, the Father's Day Rally Committee. Um, and at that rally, we had over 300 men participating, um, and we talked about the issues that were affecting Black males back then. We're talking about 1990. Um, and from there, we the organization evolved, and we created um, programs that um, geared towards addressing concerns and, and, and promoting positive images of Black males. Um, one of the first things we did was, um, on Father's Day, we decided to host a picnic. Um, to promote fatherhood in the black community in particular. Um, And we held a picnic. And from that time, we held 30 picnics uh, every year on Father's Day. Uh, We ran uh, one of the first rites of passage programs in the city of Philadelphia for African-American males. Um, We did a program called Operation Footprint, where we would literally take 75 to 100 black men of all walks, all professions into high schools and do a program in the high school sharing and highlighting Black men in the city of Philadelphia, um, which I mentioned earlier about different professions. We had attorneys, we had doctors, we had laborers, um, we had folks who owned businesses, we had individuals who were coming out of prison, we had uh, drug recovery folks. So it was a whole spectrum of the population of Black males in the city of Philadelphia. Um, and then we also, before that, I should have said after we did the picnic, we got very much involved with the issue of trying to reduce violence in the black community. 1990, there was 501 murders, uh, 385 of them were black males, and literally nobody was saying anything about it. Because your listening audience has to remember back then, we didn't have tweet, we didn't have Facebook, we, we didn't have cell phones. I mean, the phones back, cell phones back then was those big, almost like box cell phones. Um, so we stood on a corner broad and broad, and we um, declared a state emergency in the city of Philadelphia uh, around violence 
Um, from that, I'm calling for the state emergency. We organized rallies, we did vigils, uh, we did uh, organized blocks and stuff to, to begin to address the issue about violence in the black community. And I can say without hesitation that 30 years ago, we were the one to really put the uh, issue about violence in the black community on the front burner of the city of Philadelphia. Now it's interesting now, 30 years later, that same call is being made about state of emergency in the city of Philadelphia. Um, we also put or I mean, was very instrumental uh, back then promoting that violence was a health issue and that it had to be addressed that way, not in the criminal justice system, but in the health system. Um, so we've been in the forefront for many years trying to reduce violence. We've seen the numbers go down to 288, which is one of the lowest years in the city. And I can say this too, my understanding, we're one of the oldest still in existing fatherhood groups in the country. There's fatherhood groups in the country that have emerged over the years, but we were one of the first uh, in the country promoting fatherhood as a solution to a lot of ills in the African-American community. And you mentioned how the organization has evolved over the past 30 years or so. What are the major issues that you would say um, Black fathers are facing today and how is the organization addressing those challenges? First of all, we feel that having fathers involved in families, in the household with the children, is going to be a major solution to um, the issue about violence. And not only Philadelphia, but across the country. Philadelphia has um, recorded, studied, that is 400,000 Philadelphians in the criminal justice system. Um, most of those in the criminal justice system are black, and particularly black males. So all those black males involved in the criminal justice system have been taken out of households. So this is when we see this large number of single-headed households in the black community. Um, depends on when you talk to what's, what study you look at, 60, 65, percent of black households only have one parent in the household and and them are majority of them are mothers or are grandmothers or grandparents. So when you take that many black men out of families and the community, that's the impact, the negative impact we're seeing today, which has helped driving the violence. Our young males don't have the images, the young males don't have that nurturing from fathers that they need. Uh, you know, a mom can only go but so far in raising a young male. Um, so the impact we see now is how we can get fathers more involved in the lives of the children. If they, even if they're not living in the household, we need to make that image of black fathers being involved in children's lives much more than what it is now. And our organization now, Father's Day Rally Committee, is going to focus more as we move forward on how we can engage and get fathers involved in the children's lives. We know without that, the confidence is going to be what we're seeing now. And not only in Philadelphia, but across the country. If you don't have men, because we got more black men across America in prison or involved, not only in prison, but you know, have been involved in the criminal justice system. So they got all kinds of issues about trying to find employment. And then that directly involved in the children's lives, we really see now why what's going on in, in the communities of, of color across the across the United States. And for those who are not familiar with your work or your background, why are you personally committed to this cause? I'm from the old school. I was raised in a community in West Philadelphia where everybody looked out for each other. Uh, back then in the, you know, the 50s and the 60s, the numbers I quoted before about 
not having fathers in the household, it was flipped. I experienced growing up how having a father and a mother in the household, how important it was for me and my brother uh, and that community to, to have a very strong nurturing community. And, and people love the, you know, people support each other. So I'm a big believer that I grew up in that environment. I know how it helped me, even when I did things I wasn't supposed to do. So I know the importance of having a mom and a pop in the house, how important that is for the nurturing of, of, of the family and the community. Families come first. So when you have strong families and their, their culture, our culture, then you see uh, these numbers as far as violence, not at nowhere near the numbers of violence we're seeing in America. I understand how important having a family where there's both mom and pop in it and how that influence helps that child uh, to become a strong, nurturing individual. Now, this Father's Day is overlapping with Juneteenth. I'm wondering, how is your organization commemorating? And two, if you see that as taking away from Father's Day in any way, or maybe even taking away from Juneteenth, or if you've decided to just embrace this overlap? I think it's worked very well together. You can't take away Father's Day, particularly around the Juneteenth, because Juneteenth is also, folks have to remember, it's promoting our culture. You know, we're joining together our celebration of Father's Day, promoting fatherhood in the Black community, but fatherhood in general, but also Juneteenth celebrating part of our culture as a people, Juneteenth celebration, um, to me, is really, uh, it's a good joint celebration. We support the Juneteenth activities on Sunday. We're working with the, uh, the group that is organized in the Juneteenth Parade, which would be on 52nd Street. So tell us about some of the events that you do have going on this week to commemorate both Father's Day and Juneteenth. Tuesday, we had a photo shoot on the steps of the Art Museum. We had around 15 fathers showed up. We took a picture of the fathers. We're having our 25th annual fatherhood awards reception, where we honor 10 fathers taking care of their children, being very much involved in the children's lives. Some of them are very, very well known. Councilman Kenai Johnson, who has two sons. We have a brother named uh, Reuben Jones. He's very, very much involved in the ex-offender community, very much involved in getting uh, men and fathers involved, doing positive things in the community. Deputy Commissioner, Police Commissioner uh, Joel Dales. We're honoring uh, eight other fathers. There's a group in the city called uh, Grands for Parents, uh, which are grandparents that take care of their children because of, you know, the, the mothers or the fathers are not, you know, there. And we got an award that we're going to give to a grandfather for his involvement in, in raising, help raising his grandchildren. We do this every year for the last 25. It's like 10 fathers we honor, so that's like, over 250, 300 fathers we honored over the years. We always got to promote the positive in our community. I mean, we're, we're being bombarded with negatives. So our, once again, one of our key mission points is to promote the positive activities in the black community, uh, particularly with fathers. And, and we're doing that. We are involved with um, Juneteenth Coalition who's putting on the parade Sunday that will be going down 52nd Street and we're promoting that as well as activities we're doing for the fathers of Father's Day weekend. Part of being fathers too is knowing and understanding our culture and promoting it. Uh, a lot of our young folks, unfortunately, don't get that. They don't get it in the education system and they don't necessarily get it at home. How important it about being black, knowing your, your culture, knowing our, our rich history in this country, um, celebrating our heroes over the years. The more they 
we could teach that to them, um, that's going to be a major uh, help in, in resolving a lot of issues, particularly I know around the violence stuff. When you talk to young folks, some of these young folks, they heard of Dr. King, they couldn't tell you a story about Dr. King. They know about Malcolm X. Um, they never heard of Marcus Garvey. They never heard of Fannie Lou Hamer. You know, they haven't heard of these individuals. But so teaching our young folks the history, once you understand where you come from and you understand yourself, you develop self-love. Once you have self-love, you're most likely not to get involved with trying to destroy a life of your brother and sister. We have a rich culture. We have accomplished a lot. Um, you know, we always hear about the negative stuff, but who would have thought that we would live to see a black president? If we in the city of Philadelphia now, we have a 17 member city council, 10 of those members are black folks. Those are major accomplishments we, are, we have done in the city of Philadelphia. So I know that we can overcome even these shootings and stuff now. It's gonna be very hard, but can we bring the numbers down like we did back in 2005 where it's 288 or lower? I think we can, but it's gonna be a lot of work. How can people stay connected um, and learn more about the organization? Yeah, we have we have set up our, our Facebook page, it's Father Day Rally Committee. Well, thank you thank so you. much for your time. Thank you so thank much you for, for your... um, having me on. I keep up the great work that you're doing. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and, of course, with me at Raquel on Air. And please do subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Sharaday Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.